Have you ever heard this, that January is sometimes, sometimes called Two-Faced Month? Did you know that January is named after the Roman mythical god Janus? And he had, you guessed it, two faces. One face looking back to the past, and one face looking forward to the future. And so we stand here today, if you think about it, uh, looking both directions. You know, as I, as I thought about that and I read something uh, about this multi-mugged mythoman, Janus, some thoughts come to mind. Did Janus have 2020 vision? Or was it 2020-2020 vision? Or was it 40-40 vision? How about, could he sing a duet by himself? Uh, if he said something hypocritical, did people call him four-faced? Or how about when he laughed while he was drinking milk? Did milk come out all four nostrils? Um, and when he read a book and he, and he watched, could he read a book and watch TV at the same time? Or how about this? Uh, when, when he was eating... Could he talk with his mouth full? And did his mama say, don't talk with your mouth full? Or did he have a rear view mirror on his car? Or how about this? What did his football helmet look like? But anyway, it, it, it sort of makes you think about things. We know he was a mythological figure. He's, you know, there's no God except the one true God, Jehovah, uh, Yahweh, our God that we worship. But thinking about looking in two directions just reminds me. As a church, we have the opportunity to look forward and to look back. We look back on where the church was before COVID. We look forward to what the church can be after COVID. But you know, it's easy to sit here, stand here in the presence and lose our focus of what the church should be. And so we started this series you know, three weeks ago, and we called it Restore. Because the church in general throughout the world has took a hit since COVID. Attendance in churches everywhere is not where it was pre-COVID. Now, there are a few churches that have come back full strength, but not many. And so the church needs to be restored to where it was pre-COVID. We began this, this series, and we talked about uh, Nehemiah, we, we're studying the book of Nehemiah. It's a great book on leadership and on restoring something because Nehemiah realized the problem in Jerusalem that the walls were broken down. The gates had been burned. You know, Jerusalem had been pretty much wiped off the face of the map, uh, the map 150 years or so before Nehemiah came along. And he realized that was a problem. They had rebuilt the temple but the city was not thriving. Uh, secondly, in chapter 2, last week, we learned that he reviewed the needs and what exactly needed to be done. <clears throat> Today, we're going to think about refocusing the people. And we get into, uh, we'll look at chapter 3 today. But before we go there, I want you to think about what was said in chapter 2. Toward the end in verse 17, Nehemiah says to the people, you see the trouble we're in. 
The wall's broken, the gates are burned, and we need to rebuild this wall. And then you drop down a little bit uh, in verse 18 toward the end. They replied, let us start rebuilding. Now there were some people that were against them mentioned in verse 19. Some of the local leaders of other areas outside of Judea were against them. And they came and said, what is this you're doing? Are you rebuilding against the king, rebelling against the king? Of course, Nehemiah had letters from the king authorizing him to rebuild the wall. But in verse 20, Nehemiah answered by saying, The God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. And then we jump into chapter 3. Now, in chapter 3, we pick up the account here with very little explanation, which is interesting to me. Uh, you don't hear anything about assigning tasks, about organizing the people, about gathering materials. But what we do find in chapter 3 is people at work. They're at work rebuilding the wall. I think the author was, was trying to show the urgency with which this took place in Jerusalem. The people got busy. And it was not just skillful laborers who went to work. It was people from all walks of life, people from Jerusalem and the surrounding Judean areas that rolled up their sleeves and they went to work. Let's read the first couple of verses here. Elishib, the high priest, and his fellow priest, let's stop right there. Notice the first person that mentions is the high priest. He was sort of like the leader of the Jewish people there in Jerusalem. And he was the first one to go to work. They went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated as far as the Tower of, of Hanel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zachar, son of Emery, built next to them. Now I wanted to stop right there. Because this whole chapter goes on and on. It just tells about sections of the wall that were rebuilt and about the people that rebuilt those sections. Just in these first two verses, there are three groups of people mentioned. There are four sections of the wall mentioned and one gate that is mentioned. You know, the wall of Jerusalem, it wasn't a perfect square, but there were kind of four sides to it. And there were 12 gates around that wall in various places. And they went to work and begin to rebuild. First thing I want you to think about is, the people obviously saw the need. They recognized, they finally realized, these walls are broken down and it should not be in God's city. The burned gates should be fixed. And they realized that they needed to do something, that they needed to go to work. Of course, they supported Nehemiah, who had refocused them on God's agenda, not his agenda. God is the one who had laid it on his heart. And the people began to know what it was needed. You know, the more I read and study about the state of the church, especially in America today, um, and what's happened over the last couple of years, and where we need to focus and where we need to refocus, I don't get down, I get excited. I get about excited about the possibilities that we have. 
Because there's so many churches that had to close. That means there are so many people in America without a church home. We have an opportunity to reach those people. And there will never be a shortage of sin and a shortage of broken lives and a shortage of families who need restoring. And we're positioned in a place as the church to help those folks. How are we going to reach them? You know, right now we have a mission statement for our church. And that mission statement says, Connecting people to Christ to make devoted disciples. That's what God wants. Uh, you can say it different ways, but God wants us to help people come to know Christ, and then He wants those people to become His devoted disciples. That's our mission statement right now. And that should be our focus. And, you know, to help us do that, we need servants and volunteers right now throughout the church. We need people in our hospitality ministry and people working in the children's ministry and in the youth ministry and, and people to come uh, the fourth Saturday of the month when we have our men's breakfast to help us uh, do some, some small projects around the church and keep the building in good repair. We need people working in our sound booth on the technology ministry and people serving up on stage in the worship team and... and now, I told you last week, we're going to evaluate all of our programs this year. Uh, we're going to look at our mission statement, our vision, our values. And, and uh, last week I told you we're looking at uh, retaining the services of a church consultant. Uh, we interviewed one on Tuesday night, and we've put, uh, he's made a proposal, and we put that information out to all the board and the board will be reviewing that and praying about that. And next Sunday when we have our board meeting, we'll make a decision about if that's the direction we're going to go. But uh, if we do uh, hire this person, he will sort of be like a Nehemiah coming in, a set of eyes that, that has never seen our church before and, and maybe help us look to the future and some things we can do. But in the meantime, we're, we're not just sitting idle. we got church business to do. We got people that need the Lord that we need to be working to reach out to. And you know, one thing that I don't want to leave a false impression here, our church is not as bad as it could be. It does need to be restored back to, to where it was pre-COVID and even beyond. We always need to be looking to the future. You know, I'm happy to report how generous our church is. This past year, we just got the numbers in. We exceeded the budget that we had last year on our giving. So it's not like we're starving to death here and we're in danger of closing our doors. The thing is, we just can't become complacent in what has happened in the last two years as to what church is. we got to look to the future and we got to continue to move forward. Remember, for Nehemiah, God was the initiator of that. It wasn't like Nehemiah had this idea. God planted it in his heart. He was just obedient to what God had called him to do. And God helped Nehemiah refocus on what was important to God, not what was important to Nehemiah. And as our church goes forward in this, in this new culture, this new era in which we live post-COVID, we got to see what God's laying on our heart as a church and focus on what's important to Him. There's a story of a farmer that bought a farm. He attended church regularly, and he went to... Um, he went to the preacher hadn't seen him in a couple of years since he bought that, um, 
that farm. He hadn't been to visit him. He'd seen him at church on Sunday. So he decided, I'm going to go out and pay a visit and see what he's done with this old run-down farm he bought. And when the preacher arrived at the farm, he was amazed. All the, the ditch banks along the road were just cleaned out, no weeds growing in them. The fence had been whitewashed. He turned in the driveway and there were new sapling trees planted lining both sides of the, of the long driveway leading up to the, to the farmhouse. The yard was impeccably manicured. Rose bushes trimmed along the side of the house. The, the, the old run-down farmhouse was fixed up. The, it painted beautifully white, had red brick front porch on it. It was just gorgeous. He looked back in the distance and he saw a red barn that had been recently painted. It was loaded with hay. He looked out at the fields and there was a garden on one side, beautiful straight rows, tall corn growing and, and lush green stuff throughout the garden. He looked on the other side and there were fat cows and a couple of horses. It, this place was just immaculate. And so the farmer, you know, greeted the preacher, and the preacher said to the farmer, said, I am amazed at what you and God have done with this farm. And the farmer looked at him and said, you should have seen it when God had it by himself. <laughs> and you know, sometimes we think maybe it's us that does all the work. But God is the one that, that works on the heart. And we have to get focused on what God wants us to do. If we're going to restore anything, let's don't lose sight of what God wants. Now, I'm not going to read all of this chapter. I was talking with somebody before church, and they said, what are we supposed to get out of this? It just tells us these people went to work, and they started building. And that's basically what it tells you. It tells about the different sections, the different people that built. You know, amazing thing, it, it tells you who did what and where they did it at. And if you know about the Jerusalem wall, then you kind of get a picture as it, as it works its way around that wall. But what else can we draw from this? Well, first point, we already saw the people obviously saw a need because they went to work. But the second thing I want you to think about is that it was people from all walks of life that got involved. I mean, we learned from this chapter there were people, of course, from Jerusalem that got involved but also as far away as Jericho, Tekoa, Gibeon, uh, Mizpah, uh, Menorah, uh, Pathath, Moab, Zanaho, Bethzer, and Kiliah. And there are other places that are not even mentioned where people came throughout Judea and even beyond to come and help build this wall. And they were people from all kinds of backgrounds. It wasn't just like these laborers that were used to doing labor. It was both men and women that are mentioned in here. The high priest is the first one mentioned. And the other priest. There were goldsmiths out there working on the wall. There were uh, perfume makers out there working on the wall. There were district leaders and Levites and temple servants and merchants. You know, one sad note is it mentioned... The, uh, the nobles of Tekoa. It says in there about them who would not put their shoulder to the work. In other words, they weren't going to do manual labor. They were nobles. I guess they thought they were a little above this. But all the other nobles did. 
Other nobles came together, those district leaders and the priest. The common folk of Tekoa, though, built two sections of the wall, we learned. So there were a lot of people involved. In that one chapter, there are 40 different men named by their name that were involved. There are also 45 sections of the wall mentioned. So they broke it down into 45 sections. And 10 of the 12 gates of Jerusalem are mentioned here. You see what happened? God's people from all walks of life pulled together to make this project happen. The involvement of so many people makes a difference. It gets people motivated. You know, you think about it. When you come to church, like today, we're not very motivated in here because there's like 10 of us in the sanctuary today because of the snow and ice. But when you come to church and it's full and somebody's sitting in your seat and you have to sit in a different seat and, and you know, you're just glad to see somebody here visiting and, and you know, the place is brimming, it, it's just a dip, different atmosphere. You think about the, the singing is louder. The prayers are stronger. The, the feeling of the Spirit fills this place. And, 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 and somehow it gets you motivated when you have a good crowd. You know, what do we talk about? Easter's the biggest day of the year. We always love how many we have on Easter. Man, it was full. It felt so good to be in church and, and have all these people coming together. And what do you think the visitors think when they come? You know, if it's not very crowded, they say, well, that was, that was nice. But if it's crowded and, and the people are friendly and they're engaged in the service and they're singing, you know, you feel the presence of God when all that's going on. And the same thing happened in Jerusalem. The people got busy, and it was contagious. And they all started working on that wall. And it was people from all aspects, from different, you know, stations in life that came together to make this happen. Pastor Mark Roberts was the minister at Hollywood Presbyterian Church back in the 90s. And he tells about a lady that went to that church. She was a female executive at one of the entertainment companies there in Hollywood. But she was a fine Christian woman. She came to church. He said she was always impeccably dressed. She was very involved in, in leading things throughout the church. She had great wisdom uh, for the business of the church. And, and, and she was a, a visionary you know, to help the church move forward. And, and that church thrived. She was always impeccably dressed, he said, and, and carried herself very, very, you know, professionally. But he said one Sunday he was making his rounds through the children's department, saying hello to all the teachers. It was during Sunday school. And he looked down in the three-year-old class, and here was this lady, impeccably dressed, laying on the floor with a bunch of rowdy three-year-olds gathered around her, wrestling with them on the floor. And you know what he said? He said, mature leaders know when to organize and delegate and when to get their hands dirty in humble service. You know, we need to think about that. It takes everybody working together from all stations to make it happen. So people from all walks of life got involved. You know, we all have a part to play in restoring the church. But I want you to think about this last idea. The people were 
united in a common purpose. You know, all these diverse groups, people from towns and, and certain areas and districts, they all came together to make this happen, to accomplish something that was greater than they were by themselves. They felt the need that the wall needed to be rebuilt, that the gates needed to be restored, and they went to work. Uh, Nehemiah got them refocused on what God saw as important for that city. Of course, we know it was, it was not the end all. It was just the beginning of what was going to happen with those people as they also needed to be restored spiritually. But they did it in part beginning to make life better there in that city. Against all odds, in a town that was a symbol of who the Jewish people were for a God that they loved very much, they went to work. You know, uh, David Hicks will appreciate uh, one of my favorite basketball coaches is, uh, is Red Auerbach. And he coached back in the late 50s, uh, early 1960s. He was the coach of the Boston Celtics. But what a lot of people don't know about Auerbach is, well, first of all, from 1950 to 1966, his Boston Celtics played in the National NBA Championship ten times, and they won nine times. So they were a phenomenal team. You know, but he was diverse. He was the first coach to ever employ in the NBA a black player. He also was the first coach to ever put five black players on the starting five to play on the basketball court. But that's not the most important thing about Red Auerbach. He wasn't about getting a couple of superstars and building a team around it. He involved all of his players. In fact, often in the game, he played all 12 of his players that sat on the bench. He played everybody. He took advantage of everybody's talents and got everybody on the team involved. And it paid off in great success from him in winning. You know, the thing, that, that's a picture of what the church should be. Not just a couple of superstars doing everything, but everybody involved, everybody taking part in winning. And Arbach got his team focused on the goal to be the best they could be each time they took the court and, and to do all they could to win the game. You know, we're here in the church. We're on God's team. And we're playing to win, to defeat Satan, and to win the game by reaching souls for Jesus Christ. You know, next week, we're going to see all the obstacles that the Hebrew people faced. But you know, one thing they did, they always remembered the presence of God. And Nehemiah Never let them forget that. And we always, no matter where we're at in the church, need to remember the presence of God and that it's Him that we're striving for to be what we can be. Well, here's our connection. When people refocus on a worthy vision, they are motivated to get involved. But you've got to catch that vision. Those people with Nehemiah caught the vision and they went to work. You know, the, they... It, God had laid it on Nehemiah's heart. And he went all the way across the world almost to, to be with them and to lead them. You know, we already know that it only took them 52 days to build that wall once they got started. They were focused and they were united in what they needed to do. 
that broken wall, though, was only a symptom of the spiritual brokenness that they had, but it was the beginning of starting to correct that as well, which we're going to see as we study this. But I want to leave y'all with this one idea as we, uh, as we close today. And it was a verse that I quoted last week. It's a verse that the staff has heard me quote every day in the la- since the beginning of this year. It's Galatians 6, 9. And that verse says, Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your church today. And we're grateful for your word, Lord, which reveals to us men like Nehemiah who were devoted to you, who were brokenhearted sometimes for what was going on among your people, but, but who received your power and, and your motivation and began to go out and work for you to do what you had laid on their heart. So we pray, Father, not for, for your church as a whole, that all over this country that you'll begin to lay on the hearts of your leaders what the church needs to do to restore it back to pre-COVID numbers. But not only that, Lord, to, to go beyond that and to get out in this culture that's filled with sin and begin to reach people with the message and the hope and the grace of Jesus Christ. For it's in His name that we worship and we pray and we stand today. Amen.